What is up, Internet? I need to show my ass to sell this picture. My name is Matthew Kroll. And why is he having sex with her belly button? He knows where her vagina is, right? My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film The Disaster Artist. We started so smooth there. I didn't I didn't even know we were doing the podcast. I thought it was just I thought it was just you and me. It, in a room. it was just as you know, as who it is, is. Who was I talking about? Before and after. Yeah, who it who was that's I talking strange. about? Yeah. Uh, no, well, we don't have a guest this week. It's just you and me. That's right. It's crazy. Shahir, how are you? Uh, pantless, how are you? God, the same. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way to do this. We Donald Duck this episode. We Donald Ducked it we, hard. We Donald Duck every episode. Uh, yeah, but we just don't talk about it much. Listeners, welcome <laughs> once again back to our humble little program. So glad you could come. We have a special, this is a, this is a, um, dare I say, Shahir. Dare it. A seminal episode of the only podcast about movies. Seminal makes me think of fluids. Of course it does. You <laughs> fucking dirty, dirty man. No, we have a special interview. What, we do? Yeah. Oh, wait, I was there. You were? <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, okay, we do. Yeah, yeah. No, this is exciting. Who are we interviewing this week? We have a special interview with Sandy Schley, which we're going to tack on to the end of this episode. That is right. Uh, Sandy, for those who don't know, is played by Seth Rogen in the movie The Disaster Artist, the movie we'll be talking predominantly on this episode about. Yes. But Sandy has a book coming out very shortly called Yes... I directed the room. <gasps> controversy upon what? controversy. And you hear it here first. Sandy Schlair saying officially for the masses that Tommy Wiseau was not the director of the room. Now we have an interview with the man later on this episode. Yes, and Sandy was generous enough with his time to come on the podcast to, to, to correct a few wrongs about the room. I walk into the soundstage day one with Raphael. He is my DP. He slams the door behind us. The two of us start laughing nonstop. And then he looks at me. And even though he's laughing so hard, he's crying. He's got to ask the question, Mr. Director, how do you want to shoot this? That may have been one of the more befuddling moments of my entire life. It was super fun. He was a fun dude. He's a great like, guy. I liked I liked that conversation a lot. So, yeah, so I'm looking forward to sharing that. Please stick around for the end of this podcast for a special uh, in-depth discussion with one of the maker, filmmakers behind The Room. In fact, you could argue perhaps the most important filmmaker that is behind true. The Room. Now, if you'd want if you want to be interviewed by us, Shahir, where could <laughs> folks reach out to us to do something like that? You could that? just ask us on the street and we'll be like, yeah, let's talk to you. I no, mean, no, I no, do no. carry the Zoom everywhere I go. If you want to reach out to us, you can reach out to us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Matt, we are coming up to the end of 2017. Holy And there are more movies than we have time to see. I would love it if our audience, our listeners could write us in and tell us the movies that they think we should prioritize before the end of the year because uh, we do have one listener in particular, uh, Jacob on Twitter, who does call me out every year for including movies that may not have been made in that year. You're, you're bad at it. In our year interview, which yeah. will come up at the end of this year, yeah. you bring up movies like from 2014 and you make up an excuse. Well, because, you know, that's the year we reviewed it in. Uh. But, Jacob, I'm looking at you or anybody else who's listening to this podcast. If there's a film that you think will be a worthy inclusion, 
conclusion in our best of episode at the end of this year. A movie that I'm really excited to check out is Luca Guadagnino's film, Call Me By Your Name. He made one of my favorite films of the decade, I Am Love, and so I'm very, very keen to see that. You, I know- And are, you nailed his name first try. First try. Definitely no, no, no outtakes. There were no cuts around that done by some stellar audio editing. <laughs> no outtakes on that name. Uh, Matt, what are you looking forward to seeing that you might that we might hopefully get into our best of you, end of year list? I Well, I don't know if it's going to be there. I hope it is. I want to see I, Tanya real bad. You, uh, I'm, I'm keen to see I, Tanya. Real bad. Also, I, no, but it, does, it, does it come out in January? It might come out in oh, January. Oh, no! You know what that means? It's going to end up on our 2018 And I'm list. not going to forget about it. Uh, three billboards yep. I want to see. Uh, also, I'd love it if people would write us in. I want to do a Christmas movie. We did Die Hard last year. I'd mm-hmm. like to do a, a new Christmas movie, and I, I'm, I'm going to put a poll out there right now for, for the for the listeners. They can they can, they can can write in. So it's a either- North Pole? Yeah, North Pole. <laughs> oh, you fucking son of a bitch. It's either Jingle All the Way, yep. Jingle All the Way, yep. or Jingle All the Way. Did they ever make a sequel to, sequel to Jingle All the Way? If they did, it was like direct-to-video. I think it was Turbo Man 2. Oh God! <laughs> a Revenge of the Turbos, The Reckoning. Um, but yeah, so write us in uh, with all those I, things. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to you, Paul. If the first three are Jingle All the Way, the and this is right up your alley. The second three, uh, the th- second three films that you could vote on, sure, are Batman Returns, Batman Returns, or Batman Returns. Yeah, write us in. We'll do one of those two. <laughs> one of those two. Anyway, the disaster artist. That's the, why we're all here. That's we're we're here to talk about the Citizen Kane of bad movies as retold by Je- one James Franco uh, in in arguably the role of his lifetime. Although I would have argued that uh, that his role in Spring Spring Break is really defined him. I'm loving him in The Deuce, by the way. If you can check out The Deuce on HBO, he, he directed is, two episodes of that as well. Did he? Yeah, I did not know that. Uh, he is. Uh, you can't. You can't look away. His performance is that good on The Deuce. He's nice. really fantastic playing twin brothers. Um, I've loved him in 127 Hours. James Franco has this interesting thing that he's obviously a polymath of some kind. Uh, Wait, he, a what? A polymath of some kind. What a person the hell's a polymath? Uh, I hope I'm saying the term correctly, but he's a person who does a lot of things. Um, a polymorph? No, no, I don't know. He's not a Mighty Morphin Power Ranger. There's only one in the There's room. There's only one, one almost Power Ranger <laughs> in, in the room, room. And, you're, and I'm talking to him. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, like, doesn't James Franco hold like three master's degrees and a PhD or something he like is that? He's a savant. I will give, I will say that. I, I've always liked him and all of his stuff. I, I mean, ever since Freaks and Geeks, I like, I was like, there's something to this guy. This you've got to be, you've got to be the Green Goblin. You've got to be, or is it the son of Green Goblin? He was is, Harry Osborn. Yeah. And uh, he gives, he gives one of my favorite lines in any Marvel or comic book movie when he he just screwed over Peter Parker at a diner and Peter runs out crying and the waitress comes over and as James Franco is eating pie, the waitress goes, how's the pie? And he looks so satisfied with himself. <laughs> he takes a bite. He goes, so good. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful moment with that James Franco smile and just loving that he fucked over Spider-Man. Um, that's neither here nor there here because he is playing Tommy Wiseau. Whom I've been in the same room with and uh, met, actually. Oh, really? How was that? He was at one of the screenings. It's exactly how you think it would go. <laughs> um, uh, we went to the Sunshine, which yep. uh, R.I.P. Sunshine. The, the Sunshine, the in, landmark Sunshine in New York City is, is closing. Is down. closing, and you know, can we? Let's let's. I'm sorry, this is a tangent. Let's do the in memoriam for the landmark Sunshine. Well, kind of, because the the deal is, I've had a lot of great movie going experiences, and then I this is going to go into a bit of a guilt trip on my own. Mm-hmm. Like when I heard the Sunshine was closing, mm-hmm. I was like, what? I was like, no, like yeah. that's crazy. Like, what the hell? Like, I love the sunshine. Yeah. And then in the back of my head, stu- like devil me was like, how many times you go yeah, last yeah, year? How many times you been there? And I was like, 
Mm. Well, once I saw the room there <laughs> and I saw a couple indie films there on occasion, but not like not like enough. Like I wasn't I feel like I could have done more, Shahir. One of my one of my films played at the Landmark Sunshine at a film festival there. Oh, and I, and I, I, and, I, and, I and I won the and I won the uh, best film. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So but yeah. now it's closing. Now it's closing. Wait so now you now you can't brag about that when I'm talking about something know, else. Can't, you can't you can't tie yourself into that thing that I'm trying to give a memorial. I can't to. walk past that place and say I won I won best film here once. It's gonna literally be condos. <laughs> it's gonna be gone. Um, I won best I won best film in those condos. Yeah, that person in three C, they're living yeah. on my best film. Oh, um, it's sad, but again, it's 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 the it, reality movie passes contributing to this. It's uh, Starbucking, man. Yeah. Uh I mean, unfortunately, indie theaters are uh, a way of the past, but there are there are, uh, I mean, Alamo Drafthouse is arguably not an indie theater. No, at this but it's point. keeping a little bit of the dream alive with the quality. Yeah, and the Nighthawk Cinema. Uh, I picked another Nighthawk. one. Um, so, you know, look, hey, if you're listening to this podcast, go out and see a movie at the movies. Even though the very last episode we did, we encourage you to stay at home and watch a movie on Netflix. Listen, we're not, don't do as we do. Do, do as we say. Say as we do, we do? No, I'm saying they shouldn't do as we do. They should do as we say. So okay. if we said last week to stay home, do that. And if we say no, now go out, go, go see a movie. and see it, in a, see it in a, in a indie film house that, that you like. Don't just go because it's, it's there. It <laughs> don't go to, to the movie good. theaters you don't like. Is what you're you heard about. it here first. <laughs> uh, so R.I.P. Sunshine. Okay, okay. Be Let's before we get, get into the disaster artist, the room. How was your experience seeing the room at uh, a screen? I believe I might have been at the same screening as you. But I, I, think I, you were. I I've, I've never met Tommy Wiseau. Uh, I've been to two different room screenings. Okay, uh, both at the Sunshine, mm -hmm. and um, man, it's so it's so visceral and it's so wonderful. And there's something what I love about it. And I truly believe this. I don't think anybody really knew at the moment of its inception what it would become or how it turned into what it is. Yeah. Uh, but it's 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 Rocky Horror Picture Show, but without the skill and and <laughs> and, and and just with just it's literally like the sheer force of will that this thing just birthed itself into the world and and money. Um, and it's it's so honest in its shittiness that you, you can't help especially in meme culture and in and in this this uh free and open internet we can enjoy for the next three weeks uh the it's 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 got um it just can get your hooks into you and you can you can chant go 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 during the super long panning shots you can throw spoons every time you see the things uh, uh you could yell shut the door you could run to the corner when Tommy's looking at the corner and that one see there's there's just so many interactive things that people can enjoy and uh yeah i just it's it's always been a wonderful experience uh i, I love it when you're supposed to make a ruckus at a movie theater. Right. Yeah. And uh, I it really. A, it is a truly interactive experience. Yeah. And probably one of the last great interactive experiences. Until the next one. There uh, will be another uh, one. It's just they don't come along a lot. Yeah. No, they don't. And and I I I have a. I do love the room. I, I, I do love seeing the room. I love telling everyone about it. Uh, I have worked with someone who worked on the room. And, and when he told me that he'd worked on the room, I was like, wait, stop the car. You got to tell me everything and he was like oh you're one of those people aren't you, you grabbed the wheel you put you both your lives in danger yeah i did and um i you know like so but i have an uneasy relationship with the room because so here's here's an example do you remember the scene where johnny is explaining how he ended up in san francisco do you remember that scene uh no there's a scene where Johnny t is telling everyone how I think he's telling the psychiatrist how he ended up in san francisco and and he's basically saying or how he met lisa 
And uh, uh, it, it starts something along the lines of, you know, so I was, uh, uh, you know, I didn't have much money and I was at the uh, at a restaurant and I had a chick and I couldn't cash it. Uh, and the moral of the story is Lisa paid for my dinner. And it was like, and, and it's like, it's the most, you know, like everything in the room, it's this completely incongruous, nonsensical story. And in screenwriting class, when I was teaching screenwriting class, I would always show that scene because I think it was a good example of, of, of seeing something that doesn't line up that, that where the, the payoff to the story has nothing to do with the setup or the middle, more the middle beat. And so I always bring that scene up as, as an interesting thing. Now here's the, the thing is when I do that, what we're doing as an audience is essentially saying, well, we're not this bad. You know, like we, we, we clearly understand the rules of storytelling enough to, to not do it like this. So there's, there's a, I have this slight uneasiness about the room, which is that I do love it. I do have a great time seeing it. I do genuinely enjoy the, the thrill of seeing it with a live audience who are all shouting the lines, that sort of thing. What I'm, I'm not as much a fan of, and is the kind of the cult of Wuzhou, so to speak, or the kind of cheering him on when he comes into a room, uh, kind of thing or the, the, the kind, you know, like where, because, because what I'm not sure about is what the joke is and at whose expense we're having that joke. Now, I, I agree that there's certainly a visceral enjoyment of the room sure. and, and you can have fun with it. You know, it's a great experience to watch it. And it's like going to, you know, comedy, it's a great comedy show. But the thing, and I want to get into this when we talk about the disaster artist a little bit is at whose expense are we having that fun? I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm being the worst person in the room right now, which Disagree. is, that, no, which, no. is I, which is I'm being the, that guy who's like, who's like raining on everyone's parade. I don't think so. I think that's an important point. I can't believe I'm agreeing with you, but I'm <laughs> going to do it. Uh, no, it, because you, so let's put it this way. Uh, it's, it's a definite, um, at its, at its core, if you want to get into the psychology of it, and we, I promise we will be talking about the disaster artist momentarily, but this all does tie in, mm-hmm. um, the, the psychology of it is a very mob mentality, right? So for instance, you know what I'll never do? Mm-hmm. Watch the room by myself or with one or two people in my house. I'll never do it. There's okay. no point. You watch for ethical it. reasons. Or no, for- no, it's just uncomfortable. It's not really good. It's not really fun. <laughs> like, it's just like, okay. And, and it's boring. Right. Um, but you get a group of people together right. that all feel the same thing and turn that 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 manic energy, granted, into something like positive is, uh, it's for the most part. But you're yeah. still mocking this thing a person made. Yeah. Um. That, and and you and you and it turns into it, and it's a bit of a sort of like, oh, it's okay to laugh at this because everyone's laughing at it. And oh, now this person that made this, he says you're supposed to laugh at it. So I guess it's okay to laugh at it where, especially near sort of the end of the disaster artist, it gets into this, whether it's true or not. But like, uh, I mean, I believe this 100%. This was not made to be laughed at uh, initially. The, the, room. the room was not made to be laughed at. It was made, um, and you can say what you want about Tommy. I don't particularly like, I don't like that. I don't, look, I don't mind that people cheer when he comes in a room. Yeah. I, 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 in a room, uh, not a room. Cause I'm <laughs> from room. new England. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, what I don't like, uh, about it. Cause, cause I mean, you could, you could go either way. It's either Tommy's a mad genius. Sure. I mean, maybe, yeah. uh, or he has, um, borderline, uh, psychological differences for you and I, mm-hmm. and, uh, maybe it's not fair to, to be turning the entire thing into a joke. Now, did he ride this entire thing to the bank? 
Mm-hmm. Sure, that's smart. That shows a certain level of smarts, but then how much can you take advantage? How much does all sort of cinema, especially independent cinema, sort of take advantage of various aspects of the people that create it? Yeah. So um, it's it's a slippery slope. I, I don't like, and oh, and the other thing I don't like in particular is people that uh, constantly like quote it and think it's the pinnacle of humor. Like <laughs> it's a type of humor and yeah. I enjoy it. Um, but something that I, uh, you know, that, you know, you never, you know, like, Oh, when's the room ever going to go away? Uh, and it doesn't, yeah. uh, something, th- you know, this, you know, the, the disaster artist definitely feels like a bookend. I'm curious to see where the room goes from here. Right. Like it's no, they're not going to stop showing it, Yeah. but, uh, I mean, you've come full circle at this point. Have you not? Yeah, well, at the point at which the making of The Room has basically been documented both in book form by Greg Sestero and uh, Tom Bissell and now being translated into a feature film that has, uh, some reason, uh, got Oscar buzz floating around a bit. Um, yes, we are in, maybe we've reached peak room. Maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe we'll never reach peak room. I don't know, I don't know what peak room is, um, uh, but, but we're certainly at a point of, of uh, room saturation. Convergence. <laughs> um, so, Matt, tell us a little bit about what The Disaster Artist is about. Well, the IMDb description of The Disaster Artist reads as follows. When Greg Sestero, an aspiring film actor, meets the weird and mysterious Tommy Wiseau in an acting class, they form a unique friendship and travel to Hollywood to make their dream Dreams come true. Dreams come true. 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 Um, true. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not just a chicken. Cheap. 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 Um. Yeah. That's well. Okay. And do you want to go first? Do you want to? You want to tell me what you thought of the disaster at? Uh I liked it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed my time there. Mm-hmm. Um. I think Franco does an amazing. Why so? Why so? Uh. I think. Uh. His brother. It's always interesting when actors play uh, boring characters, boring real life characters. Like, I don't think Greg is particularly. um, You mean Dave Franco playing Dave Franco playing Greg? Greg, Yeah, Uh, I don't think Greg as a human uh, and I've never met him. I just based on the interviews I've seen in in the room and some of the excerpts of the book that I've read. Mm -hmm. uh, He doesn't seem very like. I'm not saying whether he can act or not currently. I'm saying like just as a person, like it's not someone who I would call like entertaining. Like so when an actor who has so much manic energy like Dave Franco does. Yeah. uh, Plays a a, a little bit pulled back person. Yeah. Like I know he's doing a good job, Mm. but it's not interesting. That interesting to me. Right. Um I mean, he's playing, he's playing like the awkward, lovable guy yeah, in this yeah, movie. Yeah. Um, who gets to uh, date uh, Alison Alice Brie, <laughs> which is wonderful as Amber. Yeah. Um, I, I liked it. I laughed at et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. I was very excited for this movie and I don't know what I was expecting because I think I got it, but I didn't like, you know what it was? And this might, maybe you're rubbing off on me a little bit on the, in this regard, but like I always rub up on you at the, at the end of it. I didn't feel anything mm-hmm. like like I didn't it didn't grab me. There are funny moments and and some of the insight true or not that it gave. I, I was like, oh, whoa. Or yeah. like, oh, I never thought about that. Like it gave me those like sort of like now I'm in the know, even though maybe I'm not. Yeah. But I didn't like when when the room at the end, spoiler alert, they screen the movie in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when Tommy is upset in the film that people are laughing. Yeah. 
uh, and then like it turns around or whatever. Like I didn't feel bad. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel and 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 Franco tries to do. James Franco's directing the film yes, as well. Yes, in both his portrayal and the direction, he he's painting Tommy definitely as a as a conflicted character whether or not you can like him or not, but also they're painting him in a in a uh you're supposed to I think feel for him even though he's a bit of a psychopath. Right. Um and I never really did. Okay. I, I don't know. What about you? I'm 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 a little bit I'm stammering out here. I mean, overall, the other thing I'll say, sorry, is it the, the filmmaking itself felt very cookie cutter borderline, just like this is a boom, stamp, film. Like yeah. there I, I didn't see and, and again for this you don't really need it, so why bother? Why start putting the cart before the horse? But like you don't need like super technical mastery. You're doing a you're doing a fun thing with your friends about a fun B movie that blew up. Like right. Uh, but like, so there's nothing like visually that stuck out. There's no, the soundtrack's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I was expecting to walk out of the theater and liking it more, mm-hmm. but I just thought it was fine. Okay. Yourself. I, so movies about making movies is one of my favorite genres because it's, it's specifically targeting things that I'm really interested in. So not just the medium itself, yeah, yeah. but the process. So, uh, I'm a big fan of seeing the pro- process of making movies on screen, especially when that process has something to say, not just about the, the filmmaking process, but about what I'm interested in filmmaking in general, which is like how filmmaking is a mirror of humanity. And did you, you know, like Dawson's Creek? Uh, I liked it when Dawson went, made movies. Okay, and there's a, there's a, there's actually an episode of Dawson's Creek that I always reference. And it's when Dawson has to go to, um, uh, I think he goes to like a film school weekend or something like that. And the very first conversation he has to have is about well, who his favorite filmmaker is, and he talks about liking Spielberg. And then, you know they're like, well, Spielberg's just so cliche. And he's like, why? Why is Spielberg cliche? And I I always like that scene. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, okay, I, I, I like checking. Spielberg. Yeah, but. At any rate, uh, so I'm a big fan of movies about movies. I've read The Disaster Artist as a book. Uh, it's a very easy read. You have uh, it in front of me. I have it in front of me just because I referenced it earlier. Um, it's a very, very easy read. It's a lot It's a lot of fun to read. And I am I am definitely, um, uh, I love the, the mythos of uh, The Room, the idea that he shot with two cameras, one in 35 mil, one in HD, the mystery of where Tommy got his money from. Where he's from. Where he's from. Uh, the notion of uh, shooting uh, an, an alleyway scene next to an alleyway, building a set for an alleyway next to an actual alleyway. The whole thing is so meme worthy. It's it's almost like uh, it's a weird like sort of like poppy for the you know two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's an unusual uh, thing. What I really enjoyed about the book um, was that it it portrayed the friendship between Tommy and Greg as something slightly more dangerous than I think comes through in the movie. Now, I don't want to get into this exercise of saying, well, the book did it better or the book is better than the movie. Although I do believe that. Um, Well, then you just did it. I just did it. Yeah, I always do the thing I say I don't want to do. But, but, you know, the thing that I was was interested in the book uh, about, and and I'm one of those people that read the book and and said, I think this would make a really interesting movie. And and to the point where I thought I could make an interesting movie out of this. Um, But here- Franco, beat you to it, that son of a bitch. I don't don't know what Franco's got that I don't, but but literally- Dashing good looks. Yeah. uh, A Rolodex or the digital equivalent full of names. 
I would have just gone with talent, super and success, talent, and success, success and uh, money, yeah. um, pr- personality, probably. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, a, he's got a lot going for him. I, a, I'm not sure why I exist at this just moment. A, just a, a, a consummate lovemaker. Oh, right. Yeah, well, uh, as, as evidenced by this film. Um, yeah, so I mean, but I, other than those things, I could have directed you. Totally. <laughs> yeah. No, but the thing that there was, a, there's a, there's a moment in uh, the disaster artist, the book, where they talk about uh, a particular movie that influenced Tommy, and that movie was The Talented Mr. Ripley, and it's, it's only ever mentioned once in, uh, in the disaster artist, but it's like it's, it's really at the core of the relationship between uh, Tommy and Greg, and, and the thing here is that Greg you know, like basically, um, befriends Tommy and, and kind of falls into his orbit. And we're never quite sure, um, how he ends up there or why he sticks around. Um, and you know, like obviously the book is written from his point of view. So, so his actual reasons for sticking around are, are not one, are not 100% clear. I think it's pretty clear though. An really apartment do. and money. Yeah, apartment yeah. and money. You're, yeah, he's a he's a he's an aspiring actor who wants to move to L.A. He's 18 or something like that. Yeah, he's 21 when they made the room. Sure, but he was 18 or 19 when he moved away with Tommy or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and there's here's this guy who apparently money is no issue, and uh, he could let them stay there, and he might. Maybe something that the movie does is it very it paints it paints Tommy almost as Greg's muse. Like right. it gets him a little bit out of his shell and like he he uh he like is able to like recite lines loudly even poorly in a diner. What's interesting about the book is that Greg is Tommy's muse in the book. And and this is why The Talented Mr. Ripley is an interesting reference point because in The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a movie I love, by the way, yeah. uh, starring Matt Damon and Jude Law in an ad- adaptation of a Patricia Highsmith novel, um, is that is that uh, it's it's uh, uh, Tom Ripley and Dickie Greenleaf in, in the Talented Mr. Mm-hmm. Ripley, but Tom eventually kills Dickie. Yes, and and there's a moment in the in the book where where Tommy, uh, where Greg suddenly starts not fearing for his life, but realizing that the relationship that he's cultivated with Tommy has actually taken on a dangerous element. And there's there's a thing that I think that has been happening for a little while. I think it, it's it's to do with the release of the Disaster Artist, which is this kind of like. Um, couch psychoanalysis of what the room means and why what what it, what what the room is actually about. A lot of people have done studies about like what well, you know have written articles about you know wh- who wh- the thing in the room is that ru- I- I- the room is a meditation on what it means to be an all-American guy from the point of view of someone who doesn't know what it means to be an all-American yeah. guy. But you know like he is a, a 9 to 5 worker who you know who's just gotten a promotion, who has a his future wife that kind of thing. Um but it all starts going <laughs> his wrong. His future wife you say. Yeah, his future wife you say. Um but it all starts going wrong for him because nobody respects Tommy and and Tommy uh, Johnny sorry in the film mm-hmm. um, and Johnny you know like nobody sees Johnny for who he truly is and you know it's obviously it's not a far stretch to see since this is an autobiographical you know somewhat autobiographical film and there's a scene um, in the disaster artist where one of the actresses played by June Diane they're Radio, on lunch yeah on lunch kind of does this sort of you know couch psychology of what this film they're making means and and I was, and I think the book does an interesting job of 
of of extrapolating that in sort of interesting directions where the relationships become between Greg and Tommy becomes um, both dangerous and endearing. And the thing that the film does that I thought that I was kind of left a little like you a little bit cold by is that it just makes it endearing. So they're just kind of like happy go lucky friends. And here's why I think. And can I, I, I just I want to wax ecstatic on why I think they went that direction. Okay. I think to make the disaster artist successful, mm-hmm. you need room fans and Tommy fans on board. From a, from a monetary standpoint, to make this film make money. James Franco doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would do a project just to make money. No, no, no. He's no, no, di- no I mean, no. like he's directed I know, I know, a lot of on, movies at on. this point. But and I, and I'm not saying this is a cash grab by any means. This is a movie he wanted to make. Yeah. But I bet you he thought it'd be much more successful and fun if Tommy was on board. And he's been doing the circuit. I saw him on Kimmel. I saw them on everything, sure. like, et cetera. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But. Um, I think what you lose in in getting Tommy's sort of sign off on it is the ability to get to the darker points of the book that you say Greg sort of gets into because it's not you, you in order to get Tommy Wiseau on late night TV and have it like. Do and you it, think Tommy Wiseau is the kind of person who understands the nuances of something like what like he signed off on the book? I think Tommy Wiseau wants to be seen in a positive light. So and you think, I think Tommy Wiseau is calling the shots on the disaster? I apparatus? do not. I think I think that's a reason. I think from a from a creative standpoint, that's the reason they didn't go into sort of the more darker tones of where the book went. It's much okay. different having a, a book written and a film made. Now the film does get into some. You know, there are moments where Tommy looks over to to Greg, and it seems a little unnerving. And there is a sort of but it uh, never takes that step. It like puts its foot on on the the edge of the line, and then just kind of steps back every time. I mean, and there is a startling scene, uh, which I think is the heart of what I want to talk about with this film, sure. uh, where you know it's the the infamous lovemaking scene yeah. where Tommy is basically directing another actress to have sex with him on screen. You know, the line that I came up, you know, started with, which is like, you know, he's having sex with the belly button. Um, and and I think on display in that scene, I think you know, I think Franco again. I really like Franco in this movie. I think he does I do a too. really. I think he does a really good job of like sinking into that role in a way that it becomes it, it because it's the kind of role that can just be pantomime. It's the kind of role where you could just do an imitation, but by the end of it, you really he really has sunk fully into it. You feel like it's him. Like yeah. there's no question. It's not just a. It's not just a, a caricature of the man. It's not like Franco because he's a consummate professional and very talented. Just gotten that dude's skin, but but the, the so this scene involves uh, I think perhaps uh, more so than any other scene, and more so and more evident in the actual room itself is is Tommy's misogyny on full display, and it's a scene where he suddenly it's Tommy's misogyny and his anxiety, you know, his insecurity and anxiety and misogyny all kind of like coalesces into, yeah. uh, into the scene where he's naked in front of the entire audience, or in front in front of his entire crew. And, and I think, you know, that to me is the scene at which it's the point at which, you know, our, our interview subject, Sandy, uh, also talked about basically, you know, jumping ship at this point. And I think a lot of people felt that way. And I think the film doesn't really get into the breaking point with Tommy, because the truth about 
Tommy, and I think we've all we've all known a Tommy in our lives at some point. Yeah, uh, is it the, there's a there's a distinction between enjoying a Tommy from a distance and, and being real close and dealing with a Tommy on a day to day basis. And I I I know from personal experience, I have a I have a personal limitation when it comes to people that you know like are in my mind, a little dangerous, uh, to be around. And I, I mean, I don't know Tommy personally, but I feel like he might be the kind of person who we might want to, you want, you might want to be a little cautious around yeah. now. He might be lovable, endearing and not, and just not in on the joke. And I've certainly met people like that as well. But, but, uh, but I guess my overall, uh, disappointment, and I do want to say, you know, look, take it for what you will. I've read the book. I know immediately that that just puts you in a position where you know more than the film um, or, you know, you, you know, m more story than the film can offer you. Sure. And I have not read the full book. Yeah. But um, you feel but the same way, I think as well in, in that, in that I don't think the film uh, necessarily really goes to any places outside of, outside of treating this friendship as like an endearing friendship. It's, it's a very safe movie. Yeah. Unlike say a film like Ed Wood, which, which has, you know, Ed Wood and, um, uh, oh, I've forgotten his name. The guy who played, uh, Fra uh, Bela Lugosi. Yep. It has Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi kind of like squaring off at each other, realizing, you know, basically challenging each other's existence as, and as artists. Um, and I'm not sure that this film does anything even remotely like that. Now that's not to say, you know, it's not, there aren't, you know, like, as I always say, pleasures to be had and there are laughs to be had. I, I, I would argue that seeing the room itself is a more insightful experience. Seeing yeah. the room with an audience is a more insightful experience because the, the thing about watching the room is even if you're not a filmmaker, you can see the seams of that movie on screen. So, so seeing a film about the making of that movie, you know, needs to do something more than just show you the seams. And that's, and that's what the disaster artist does for me. Yeah. Uh, I'll say one thing. I feel like I've been a little bit shitting on the movie. Um, the, 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 there was one scene that I did feel something and it was Dave Franco. It's, it's the, during the run in with Brian Cranston about getting a, a walk on rolls and lumberjack and Malcolm in the middle because he likes his beard. Didn't happen by the way. No, no. So it's not in the book. It's not in the book. That's no. just another random sort of thing. That's just something they added. Yeah. It's so funny because the one moment that grabbed me was the thing that, <laughs> you know, uh, but then he asked Tommy if he can have the day off. Yeah. Uh, he says, no. Yeah. That that hap that actually happened to other, to other people, and I believe Sandy might have been one of those people, according to the book. Now Sandy will say something different about the reasons why he yeah, left yeah. the film, but but uh, in the in Greg Sestero's book, uh, uh, Sandy is one of those people, as well and and as well as a couple other people who basically wanted to leave but weren't allowed to. Sure, um, but you feel this empathy because because uh, Tommy's like no, because he's mad. Tommy's mad in the movie about uh, how you know uh, Greg is spending more time with his girlfriend Amber, and like their friendship is being pulled apart, and there's you know that yeah. sort of. Like, tearing me apart, Amber. Yeah, the the there's that single white female sort of momentish type sort of weirdness yeah. to it. Uh, and then he's like, "You need to decide for yourself, Greg." And then the next day, you just see him shaving his beard, and yeah. that was sad. Yeah, uh, that I think Dave Franco played that incredibly well, and that was the only time where I was like, "Oh fuck!" But interestingly, what that scene points to as well is something that I was really. Now I don't fault anyone who worked on the movie for this or, or, or anything like that. But I, it was something that was just in the back of my, my mind reading the book and seeing the movie. And that is why stick around. And, and it's clear to me because, because here's the thing. Everybody's got a price. Everyone has a, pr well, it's not just that. It's just, 
because it kind of is, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that as a as a, as a, a, a derogatory thing. I have a price. Yeah, we we both whore ourselves out yeah. on a daily basis yeah. for projects. Um, well, I guess the thing is, is that I don't think the film interrogates that idea. And I, look again, this film is enjoyable. It's a comedy. It's you know, like for people who don't know what the room is or haven't seen the room, it's kind of a an off you know an oddball kind of look at like a film that goes bad uh, or a film that 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 sort of you know uh, doesn't seem like it should have been made but yeah. it ends up being made. Um, and I think that 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 is is interesting, but uh, but I don't feel like the film goes beyond that no. and 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 that that to me is sort of problematic now i'm going to do the so so you know again if tommy was poor i would be curious how many people would be able to to and maybe this is a sadder indictment on human beings in general but if tommy i would, like where you're going yeah, if tommy was poor and and unable to afford you know making his film i don't know how much he would get away with and how much we would know about him we wouldn't now, this would this would this would not exist if you didn't dump six mil or whatever it was into it like it would, what, whatever the mystery is around how that how he got that money and the other thing i wanted to bring up was something i was talking about earlier in terms of feeling uncomfortable with indulging with the with the cult of the room yes. which is that at whose expense are is the joke of uh of enjoying the room because as i say going to see the room is a really pleasurable experience it's it, it's it is is probably the most fun I've had at a movie uh, full stop. And I am going to be that person. Uh, I, this is something I love to do is I, I, I love like analyzing jokes and I know that's the worst thing you can do. You're the worst kind of person. I'm the worst kind of person, but I love like analyzing why a joke works and like figuring out exactly the moment at which a joke goes beyond just making you laugh, but making you think, and also maybe making you laugh in a way that you hadn't thought about before. Um, so I love that kind of work. There's a really good uh, episode of Nerd Writer where Nerd Writer, um, uh, where, where the uh, visual uh, an essay about why Louis C.K.'s jokes work. Now, unfortunately, that is dated badly. <laughs> but but Louis C.K. for for all his recent malaise, uh, you know, earned or not unearned, uh, not probably earned. Uh, no, mm. earned. But he even says he's done what he did. Um, so let's let's not beat around the bush about that. Let's not let's not be complicit in that. There you go. Um, uh, talks about his skills as a joke writer um and and what he does to make people laugh um but I wanted to bring up this this article written by Nathan Rabin, uh, Rabin who was formerly of the Dissolver film critic, um, who I really, really like. But um, the, and I'm going to read this out. If genuine laughter is a spontaneous and joyful expression of understanding and appreciation, so natural it's reflexive, then Wiseau's laughter is inveterately forced, pained and joyless. It's a dry, desperate, phony approximation of sincere amusement that relentlessly calls attention to itself, even as it professes to be effortless and sincere. As Tommy Wiseau, serious artist and sentient goof James Franco nails all of the surface details of the cipher he's playing, particularly the sadness and confusion of that hard, brittle, fake, quasi-laugh of confusion and desperation. Franco captures that while while Wizzo's mouth, which perpetually feels like it's full of peanut butter and or cotton mouth-inducing pills, may be joyously droning ha-ha-ha, the eyes betraying that he has no idea what he's supposed to find amusing, but apparently laughing is a common trait of these humans, so as long as he's at least attempting to pass among their ranks, he may as well give it a shot. And the scene that that is that is definitely referring to is a scene about uh, where Tommy is is responding to a line that Greg 
Briggs is about a woman being beaten up so badly that she ended up on a hospital on Guerrero Street. And everyone who's watching Tommy play out that scene, James Franco play out that scene, is kind of disturbed by the fact that Tommy laughs. And it's a line that he wrote. And it leads to this kind of thing that we have when you watch the movie, which is that, oh yeah, it's hilarious that he doesn't, that he laughs at that line, which is something you shouldn't laugh at, you know, and that's the kind of um, taboo breaking that comedy should do. Sure. But does Tommy know that? And does, and are, you know, does Tommy's misappropriation of the point of laughter, is that actually more indicative of a dangerous thing or, or or a damaging thing than it is of something that we can just take enjoyment at. Now, if he's harmless, and he is, you know, like we, you know, don't, I don't want to certainly insinuate that Tommy Wiseau is, is a person who has committed crimes or anything like that. I'm not, I'm wow. no way okay. saying anything like All that. Okay, all right. Um, but, but, but is it fair for us to indulge in that? Now, I don't, I like I say, I enjoy seeing the room and I do laugh along with that. But I'm I, I just asking the question and, and my question relates to if you're going to make a movie about that, then is that something worth investigating or not? I don't know. Well, 100 percent. I mean, I, that's super easy to answer. 100 percent. It's worth investigating. Yeah. Does this movie investigate that? No. Do you do you does that does that make you think about do, does Tommy laughing at that line? Does that give you pause in any way? Yeah, well, of course it does. The But again, it goes back to, again, I go back to, you know, anything in society that we deem that, that in my opinion, is amoral or, or not correct behavior or however yeah. you want to do it. Like you get a mob mentality behind a thing and it melts away. Yeah. Like that's just psychology and that's <laughs> fucked up. Watch a Trump rally at any day yeah. of the week and you so might like, do the same so thing. So it's just like, and, and you could go the opposite end of the spectrum and that would be, well, you're laughing at it because it makes you uncomfortable. Right. Um, and you're you're trying to take the power back, uh, or sort of, so to speak, uh, of a moment that is kind of horrible, and you're trying to turn it around. Your brain is trying to turn it around, maybe even in a group mentality, uh, in a mob mentality, so that you, you don't... And I'm not saying this is altruistic. I'm saying it's kind of self-preservation. So you don't have to look at it like you're like oh, I, ha, I, and you can I, kind of brush it off. I guess what I'm what I'm concerned about is we we have definitely heard stories of people responding to uh, social media bullying or whatever or or uh, you know irreparable laughing in negative ways. Now, if Tommy ever uh, see, I don't. I, is Tom? I guess again, I'm asking questions here. I'm not. I'm not proposing. Anything I'm answering them de- definitively here. But is Tommy the butt of the joke here? Yes, and the reason that's okay is a is there's many of them, but the main reason is he bought it, he paid for it, and now he's selling it. Right. And, but now and, if Tommy and now again, let's go back. Let's go back to original question you asked. If Tommy was broke yeah. and Tommy uh somehow made this movie and it was getting shit on all the time and whatever and blah blah blah, and he wasn't happy with the fact that it was getting shitting on or making lucrative money and no one saw it, then you're literally just making fun of someone whom, in my opinion, um uh d- brain functions differently than ours. And I don't think that's correct. Right. But the fact that that uh it he has a, a high enough sort of functionality in our society to make money off of this and to he, he made it and he sold it that's right. the bottom line but what if what a, if tommy tomorrow harmed himself 
because of backlash against the thing I guess the thing I guess you're talking but there's about not backlash. No, no, but hang on. The thing I think you, I guess you're talking about is 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 presuming that we understand Tommy's feelings about this. And I guess for me, no, the, I'm it, saying his feelings don't matter at this point. Yeah, I guess the thing is, is that what's what we should presume is like, how do we feel about it? And I'm not. I, I look again. Fun movie. Fun, enjoyable movie. I hate to be... You're really selling it. I hate to be the wet blanket guy. I'm just the wet blanket guy sometimes. That's what I am. Uh, I am sadness in Inside Out. <laughs> you know, like, I'm that character. Uh, okay. Uh, um, but but I'm just... I'm curious about this. I'm, I'm curious about this as an idea. And I, and I feel that... Well, that's my take. I mean, the, the, the second you sell a thing... <laughs> You you give up and and you and you market it and you advertise it. I don't care if it hurts you on the inside because you're doing a thing on the outside. Like you're doing it. You've made a conscious choice. I guess I I don't see it in binaries like that because I think the world is a complex place and 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 it's a complex. And the thing is, I think it's a complex equation that's happening here when we laugh at the room because we're laughing at something that we don't understand and that we're not. And I think we laugh at it because because it's because it should be a failure, and we think we could do better. Yeah, and I think it makes us feel better. And I again, that's a complex equation. That's that's reality television. That's that's exactly why people tune into nonsense stuff like that, or at least I did. I know it's obviously taken. It, back the, I guess you know maybe the 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 back end of this is this is perhaps why we are where we're at politically. That I kind of think about things like that. You know whether we are analytical enough. Now again. I love going to see the room. I do. I genuinely, I think it is an experience that I highly recommend to anyone who loves being in a movie theater. It is the best experience of being in a movie theater. But go to that theater and then you think long and hard to yourself about why you're laughing and rip all the joy out of the experience by talking about it afterwards. Yes. No, it's just, it is. Just I know a- it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I a hundred percent agree. I just, I, I, that's, I mean, that's where I stand on it. And, the- and, and, and people can take different. That's the great thing about philosophy is you can kind of take it any which way you'd like and and subscribe to many different uh, uh, ways that we believe humans interact or uh, what what is morally right or not right or or is even better are there even morals I mean there we go yeah uh, but uh, I, I think I think if you're a fan of the room I'll sort of get into my final thoughts because yeah. I really do want to get to this interview I want to share this interview with everybody yeah um, final thoughts if you like the room and you enjoy seeing it in a theater and and stuff and you're familiar with it go see it while i go see the disaster go see the disaster artist while i am morbidly curious about if someone who has not heard a lick of anything about about the room goes to see the disaster artist i cannot in good conscience tell you to go see in my opinion the disaster artist i'd love to hear i'd love to hear what you think yeah but i wouldn't say to pay money write us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com if you have uh if you have never seen the room and go to see the disaster artist or hit us up on twitter at onlymoviepod uh i am i think i'm i'm sort of in the same boat as you but i think perhaps maybe the most appropriate way to see the disaster is, ha- is not having seen the room and not in- indulged in it in a way that I have. You well, know, we like, don't know. Yeah, and I think I think that might be an interesting experience. Um, but I, now you're being the mad scientist. Now you're being the, the person. You just want to know what that's like. I want to know what that's like. And um, here's a. I want to because again, this is my favorite. Uh, this is amongst my favorite genres of filmmaking. Films about film. What's the name? Okay. Uh, I want to. I want to uh, encourage you to watch a couple things. And I think these. 
these two films in particular will kind of engage in that question. Um, one of my favorite movies about movie making is a documentary called American Movie. Oh, uh, it's so good. Yeah, with Mark Borchardt um, uh, trying to make, uh, what was the the coven? Yeah, the, the coven. Co the coven. He's trying to make the coven. Uh, and it's a really fascinating, uh, almost another example of like, are, is Mark in on the joke? You know, like, does Mark know that he might be the butt of this joke? And I don't, I, in many ways, I'm more comfortable with Mark because Mark to me seems uh, slightly savvier about his position. And uh, Todd Salons, the filmmaker behind Happiness, did a did a portmanteau film uh, a few years later called Storytelling, where he did a double hitter. Uh, essentially, there were two short films back to back. One was about a documentary filmmaker making a film that his audience suddenly fall, you know, suddenly starts laughing at unintentionally. He didn't intend it to be funny, and it stars Mark Borchardt in it. And he and I think Todd Salons is basically pulling, you know, like asking that same question. And again, now, I don't know. I, I don't think that's the kind of head trip that uh, that that James Franco uh, wanted to do with the disaster artist. And I'm not I don't want to play that game, which I'm doing, which is which is I don't want to do the thing, which which is review the film I wanted to see and not the film I actually saw. The film I actually saw has has some fun laughs in it. I think uh, Franco does an excellent job of of play of of channeling Wuzo, and I think um, my enjoyment in the in in the the world around the room was cultivated by this film. So I think it does a really good job of that. My my further depth of understanding about the room and the world around it was not as enlightened as it was by reading the book. Yeah. And it wasn't as enlightening as our interview with Sandy Schleyer, which is coming up after this after this uh, this conversation. So in please a, stick around for in that. In a few short minutes. Yeah. Uh, one other sh uh, sort of thing about uh, the, these sort of movies about making movies or movies about eccentric sort of characters uh, who make movies is my uh, my friend Phil Healy uh, and a couple other of my friends uh, made a film, a documentary called My Name is Jonah. Mm -hmm. And it is about a man who whose name is Jonah, who I've actually had a drink with at a bar after the premiere of this or a screening of it yeah and uh it 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 documents you can find it at um uh my name is jonah film.com or you can find the trailer anyway and you can rent it i think on um on all the different aggregates but it's uh it's a dude who's just obsessed with being sort of like an a c a c list sort of movie action star okay and uh it's again you wonder but but also something and again these are documentaries we're talking about both american movie and my name is jonah are both documentaries in in the very sense of the word and that sort of leads gives you the freedom as an audience member to sort of make your own emotional judgments mm -hmm. where I feel like narratives really have to, and not to say that, uh, you know, documentaries aren't crafted, but, uh, you know, I feel like you have, if something is a narrative, you have a complete leeway to really try to push your audience in a direction. And it's something that I, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel that, uh, that there was really sort of done for uh, the disaster artist. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with the, with that. Are we, did we just become best friends? No, uh, God, yes. I hope not. Can but, we you know, but, you know, but you know who would make a good a good friend and, and, and maybe even a good drinking buddy? <laughs> Who's that? That would be Sandy. Sandy. And we're gonna uh let's uh, name drop his book real quick before we before we jump back in because I want everyone to check it out and then we're gonna get to the interview. So Sandy's book, which is dropping in a few weeks' time, is called Yes, 
I directed The Room, The Truth About Directing the Citizen Kane of Bad Movies. Uh, look for it. It's, uh, I'm definitely going to be purchasing a copy of it to read. Uh, Sandy Chaclair, uh, Chaclair, uh is going to be joining us right now for a few moments to tell us why he was per- the, perhaps the most important person behind The Room. Here we go. Sandy, thanks for taking the time to join us on the only podcast about movies to talk to us about your book called Yes, I Directed the Room, The Truth About Directing the Citizen Kane of Bad Movies. That is correct. This is not released just yet. This will be coming out shortly. Come out in about a week, I think, oh, wow. according to my publisher. Fantastic. You know, let the disaster artist come out, come out with the book a week later. That yeah. makes sense to me. Sandy, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into the film industry, how long you've been in the industry and you know, like where you, where, where you, did I come from? Well, where you want where you wanted to be as you, when you started, when you were a young man thinking, I want to be, I want to be in the motion picture business. What were you kind of <laughs> thinking about? That was not how it happened at all. Well, tell us. When I was a young man, I was in medical school. Oh, wow. And I stayed in medical school for quite a long time. That is an old story. Okay. I ran screaming from the emergency room (laughs) and ended up in California where I decided I wanted to make movies. And I just started from scratch at the age of about, I don't know, right around 30, 31. That's when I got into film. Wow. Wow. A little bit later in life, but still, still a young man. And obviously, if you were in the medical industry, one of the one of the interesting credits on your name is the Devil's Rejects, the Rob yes. Zombie film. Yes. So did did your experience in in the medical field kind of play into the films you chose to end up uh, working on, or no? But when I was I was at the emergency room at Cook County, Chicago. Yeah. And when I uh, they played on the TV show ER. Oh, wow. Uh, A pair of large hands grabbed me from behind and said, oh, my God, this is where you ended up. (laughs) And it was my it was my attending from my emergency room days. Wow. And I said, yeah, you too. He goes, yeah, I ran away also. (laughs) And medicine is is that's an entirely other conversation. But film film rocks. (laughs) I love my life now. Film rocks. Well, tell us tell us a little bit about your life now, then. Okay, so I came out here, didn't know anybody, called around. How do I get started? What do I do? How do I make this happen? I started writing. I sell the occasional screenplay, um, but I found that uh, I was a had the perfect temperament for being a script supervisor, and so I've been a script supervisor for 26 27 years and and it's been my experience on the on the films uh and the sets that i've worked on that that is the god if, if it was not for multiple script supervisors that i have had the the entirety of my productions would have crumbled so that is always uh that is always a, a role that i like to keep happy and i'm always very thankful for oh well, thank you one of the reasons i took it is because it it comes billed as one of the two or three hardest jobs on a film set yeah to me, coming out of medicine, that kind of challenge really appealed to me. Yeah. Is there is there something I, I, I'm always curious about uh, members of the film community that uh, that I that do the aspects that I would be awful at. Uh, is there are there any sort of um, tricks or techniques that you've used throughout that like help you along the way in like a day to day? Or is it just that you have like a mind like a steel trap and you can kind of remember all the continuity things and the things you need to you know get through? Yeah, that second part. It seems to be a theme among all the uh, all the top script supervisors. Yeah, we tend to have nearly photographic memories, uh, which is what what helped me in medicine. It's the same thing that I took me through medical school. Uh, you need a, a really sharp memory for everything you're looking at, and 
you got to know filmmaking and editing so that as you're watching it, you, you know what's important and what is not. What matters and what doesn't. But I'll tell you, right from the get-go, there's only two things that matter in making motion pictures. Two items only. Okay. Hit us. Story, performance. That's it. The rest that we all do, it's a comfort level. Spielberg would tell you the exact same thing. Story and performance. 26, 27 years as a scripty, I have directed so many movies for the first and second timer, prepare their shot lists, walk them through the projects, story and performance. There's been plenty of projects where the shot list has to go through me before the director can call the call the shots. Right. Gotcha. Right. You know, you get your four million dollars and Sandy comes with it to make sure we can get a movie that we can sell. <laughs> and that's so, pretty much how it works. I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of scripties that do that. But as of, well, as of, uh, I'd say about a, a year ago, I am really trying strongly to start the directing career. I noticed that you've just directed a short film, um, and I'm presuming this is the beginning of uh, your feature film career, although some would argue you've got a fairly long storied feature film I career behind you. I have a very strong, what, one of the big complaints you hear from all script supervisors, I am so tired of other people getting credit for my work. <laughs> you see, and that's how it works. Countless films that you have seen, they are all directed by their script supervisors because the guy in charge really doesn't know how to direct. He may in two or three or four of those movies, but not when he's sitting next to me the first time. So, so I'm curious, uh, now you're sh making the shift now into directing yourself. Um, and obviously, uh, jump, anyone who takes the the leap into the film industry does it because they're passionate about film or cinema. You must be. And, and you're a, you're a screenwriter as well. So I'm curious what kind of films you wanted to make or you want to make now. I have, well, you've seen the room. I have a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like funny. The one thing I don't like in any movie, I don't want to have to walk out to the parking lot after that movie is over and want to kill myself when I get in the car. No. Gotcha. no. I want happy endings. I, I mean, I love death to it, but I want a happy ending. I want a strong resolution, and I, I want to feel better about myself. You know, the one of the most popular moments that, that people go to the films is during tough economic times. Yeah. Right. The Depression. Film industry did great during the Depression. It always does. People are going to escape. You don't leave your miserable life to get entertained and get even more miserable <laughs> by the end of the movie. That does not work for me. I was recently asked to direct a horror movie. Yeah. And I said, well, only if I can make it funny, because I, I don't know any other way I could direct that. And by the way, I've started a production company. I've got 17 films in, in order with scripts written, producers lined up. I am ready to hit the ball really hard. I'm ready to hit the ground running. I've got two TV shows that I'm gearing up uh, to try and sell. I spent a week at AFM. And may I just say, holy crap. Um, <laughs> AFM is not to be believed. I had a guy hit me up for a deal in the bathroom, and I'm not kidding. Not kidding. Right. <laughs> for those who don't know, AFM is the American film market where people go to sell scripts and uh, get production deals made. Um, Sandy, I'm going to read to you an excerpt from The Disaster Artist, which describes you, you in the uh, meeting you, basically. Uh, I'm sure you've read this uh, before, and it's awkward to read it in front of you, but uh, But Shahir's good at awkward, so <laughs> yeah. he's just going to move forward with that. 
Awkward Sandy, is my best friend. <laughs> Sandy had 25 years of experience in film and television, most of it in the script supervising capacity. With his untucked flowered shirt, Selleck mustache, and hefty glasses, Sandy looked about as non-LA as it was possible to look. He was friendly and funny most of the time, though his work on the room nearly drove him mad. We're going to shift slight gears slightly now to talk about the subject at hand, which is Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Now, if we go back to 2002... Um, it was 2002 that you started on the film, or was it earlier than that? Yeah, it was right at the very end of 2002. So I'm shooting in 2002. He's cutting and releasing in 2003. Gotcha. Okay. And so you're friends with Peter Anway of Burns and Sawyer, is that correct? Mm, only from that moment in my life. Oh. Um, you just mentioned the name, and I'm going, God, Peter, Peter. Oh, yeah, that's the guy, <laughs> okay. and Sawyer. But I, I just wanted to mention that because in the room, it's described that he is the person that, well, in the disaster artist, he is the person that basically enlisted you because he felt he needed a, an assured hand to make sure this thing actually got through, and that's, you were that person. That's not true at all. Oh, really? See, oh, well, and tell this us the true is, story. This is what my book is all about. Okay. Okay. You know, I spent 13 years listening to Tommy Wiseau telling countless lies about me on online. I never responded. Uh, the cult world is a very dark place at times. You can lose your soul in there. Um, I prefer to have a more legitimate career. Um, the cult world. So... I knew Raphael Smadra, not, not, I didn't really know anybody at Burns and Sawyer. They may have known me. I got a pretty strong reputation in Hollywood, mm -hmm. but basically Tommy bought the equipment, bought, yeah, yep. <laughs> yes, bought, Tommy bought a giant pile of equipment that's <laughs> going to be obsolete by next Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, and then he had two completely incompatible cameras fixed mounted on the same plate. I've spent 14 years still trying to figure out why he did that. <laughs> and to this day, I have no idea. So in my book, and I would like to stress this, 14 years of lying, and I keep waiting for this to go away. I work with some really big hitters now, huge directors. And they're all, they all give me that funny look like, geez, isn't this ever going to go away? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I keep hoping. I keep hoping. <laughs> But like uh, Pacino in that that Last Godfather, they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> I can't escape it. And then, oh golly, Seth Rogen and James Franco are going to make a movie about the whole damn thing. And at that point, and by the way, those boys have never talked to me, not even once. Okay. Oh wow, that's right. Okay, I decided since they weren't talking to me, and this isn't going away, and my face, name, and words are about to be blasted across the planet Earth. It is long past time for me to write a book and set the record straight on what happened. They never showed me their script. They never talked to me on the phone. They hung up on me the one time I talked to Seth. Hmm. Nobody wants to talk to me about that. So let me ask you guys a question. Sure. So, Matt, you're sitting alone in your house, eating a burger, smoking a joint, whatever you're doing. Sure. All of a sudden, your phone rings. Oh, yeah, by the way... Seth Rogen has decided to play you in its next movie. He's going to say everything with your face, your name, your voice. And oh, by the way, he's never going to talk to you. <laughs> How would you feel? Yeah, no, not good. Uh, I want. So what's planet the, Earth? Yeah. How would you feel? No, it's it's what would your recourse be? You write a book. Yeah. Well, there, I have no other choice. If I don't say what really happened, because. If Franco and Rogan, they're, they're making their movie in Hollywood. 
Sure. Now, I may not look 60 years old, but I am. And I've been floating around this town for 30 years. I know everybody. Most everybody. So they're shooting a movie and they're talking to their crew now. Now, nobody here is really good friends with Sandy Schlier, are they? No. No, we don't even know him. <laughs> Boys, I'm getting called from that set every single night. Wow. This is what they said about you today. This is what they did with you today. This is what happened today. So while I am not the villain in this movie, there are many non-truths being said. My book sets the record straight. Yeah. Oh, well, this is no, this is really fascinating. Uh, and and I have to say, um, having just seen the film, I think you your character played by Seth Rogen comes off fairly favorably in this. And I think you're described in the book fairly favorably as as someone who kind of held this together. Greg is a good guy. Yeah, he's a good guy caught between a rock and a Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very curious. Um, uh, he never really lied about me. Yeah, the lies in that book are lies of omission. So oh, tell us some of the lies of omission that you feel need to be corrected. Because here's here's the real deal with that movie. I was the script supervisor, the first AD, and the director. Gotcha. Three of the four hardest jobs on film. Yeah. No one man ever makes a movie. Right. No two people ever make a movie. Of course. But I'll tell you, that movie is a success for many reasons. Tommy's face, <laughs> those crazy words, unskilled actors, ridiculous dialogue, <laughs> and me. I put the funny in it. All right, that entire movie is take 20. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't want Tommy's credit. You know what? When it comes right down to it, kudos to Tommy. He rolled into town from Europe. He got a movie made. Do you have any idea how impossibly hard that is to do? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. incredibly hard. Producer? Yes. Writer? Sure. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Actor? Well, I leave that up to everybody else. Yeah. But director? No. He never directed anything. He never once said action, never once said cut, never told actors how to act, never blocked a scene. Nothing. Even if you are making a high school movie in your garage, you still have to shoot it in a way that it can be cut together. Period. That's it. I did my job. I made it funny. And frankly, I never laughed so hard in my entire life. <laughs> if, you think that, if you think that shit is funny on an 80-foot screen, oh, you need to see it from three feet away. You'll oh beat yourself every night. So, so the reason uh, I got in touch with you, Sandy, is I think we have a mutual friend that worked on the film. I'm not going to say his name on this podcast, but... Um, no, and, I, and he's taken a real shy road on this. I will always respect his choices. Yeah. But he's got to understand, nothing remains hidden in Hollywood forever. Gotcha. Eventually, he's going to come out, whether he likes it or not. Well, he's he's mentioned in the book uh, to, yeah. to some degree. I mentioned his first name in my book, but that's it. Okay, and I love him and respect him. Uh, he's a great, great guy. Um, let's let's take a sidestep for a second. Anything. What do you think of the Disaster Artist, the book or the film? Uh, the book was not accurate. Lies filled with lies of omission. Um, there is one photo of me, a little tiny one up in a corner. You know, they must've had to work really hard to find that <laughs> and to, to find photos without me in it. Gotcha. Um, I was, I, I, I doing the, I'm in the center of everything at all times. Right. 
You know, Tommy even uploaded that. He's constantly coming after me. He uploaded a thing. There was an entire script. No, there wasn't. There was never a script. That script may have existed at his house, but there was never a script. I started, I started directing that movie about one hour after meeting Tommy. Hello. <laughs> I had three pages. I had an entire crew, except for a couple of people, all on their first movie. I had six actors that had never acted in front of a camera before. <laughs> and then I had Raphael Smaja. Right. And that old man and I laughed our fucking asses off nonstop. But you still have to direct a movie. I devoted an entire chapter to how I ended up in that place at that time. Um, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of guys like me floating around Hollywood. We are hardcore professional veterans. I swear to God, if the finger of fate had landed on any one of those guys, they all would have done exactly what I did. So I got to, I got to ask. Wait, hang on a second. I okay. walk into the soundstage day one with Raphael. He slams the door behind us. The two of us start laughing nonstop. And then he looks at me. He is my DP. And even though he's laughing so hard, he's crying. He's got to ask the question, Mr. Director, how do you want to shoot this? That may have been one of the more befuddling moments of my entire life. How am I going to shoot this? How am I going to do this? Anytime you hit a moment like that, my boys, the answer is rebel without a cause. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to I gotta ask the question. And again, this is uh, from The Disaster Artist, uh, which, uh, you know, written by Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell. Uh, the, the, the quote here is, uh, years later, Sandy would claim to have directed the lion's share of the room, which I don't think is in much dispute these days. Um, but the quote that follows, it, I think is an interesting one. And, uh, and I apologize if it, if it comes off, uh, wrong you, you probably know the quote. I've uh, heard them all. Hit yeah. Me. Yeah. But, uh, the quote is, uh, uh, Sandy would cl claim to have directed the lion's share of the room, which is a bit like claiming to have been the Hindenburg's pr principal aeronautic engineer. And I'm curious, um, you know, we, we mentioned our mutual friend who has shied away from, from having his name associated with the room. Obviously the room is a major success, but is the room something you want to be associated with as the director? Of course. How so? First of all, the Hindenburg was one of the most brilliant airships of its day. <laughs> its aerodynamics are not what shot it down and set it on fire. Okay. <laughs> that ship was the state of the art. All right. But I understand Greg's meaning, and I sent him a lovely little email right after that. Okay, is it the worst movie ever made? Oh, my God, no. The worst movie ever made is sitting in people's cans in their basements in Peoria, Illinois, and somewhere in Nebraska, and they never see the light of day, and there are millions of these. My movie? Oh, it's been seen by over 50 million people. Yeah. That is the sign of success in Hollywood. Right. Okay, is it the worst movie ever made? No. Is it the most bizarre? Maybe the weirdest? Maybe the most surreal? Absolutely. I took what I got and I did what I could with it. I took a Grand Canyon filled with lemons and I made an ocean filled with lemonade. I did what I could. I took the funniest elements and I went with them. I directed every single scene so high over the top, my actors needed oxygen just to say the lot. <laughs> or, air con or air conditioning in some cases. Yes. Yeah. Just keep jamming it up. Take one. Lisa, you are driving me crazy. Lisa, you are driving me apart. No, Tommy, dude. <laughs> Louder. Bigger. Okay, take 21 was pretty good. 
So have you had a chance to see the film version of The Disaster Artist yet? No. It's not playing anywhere near me. I've got... I've got a lot of psychological demons about walking of in on course. that movie. Of course. Well, that, that was going to be Holy my... crap. Yeah, I mean, that's... Even you, when you posed me the question, what I would do in the same situation, I, I honestly don't know. And right. it seems as though... Uh, I mean, that's got to be one of the hardest uh, things to really wrap your head around. I, Shahir did mention before how uh, you portrayed by Seth Rogen in this film. We, uh, she and I have both seen it at this point. Uh, you definitely come off favorably and as a voice of reason. Thank you. That was less of a question, I guess, since you haven't seen it and more of a, it just, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. You're, you're an incredibly likable dude and I, and I'm oh, loving this conversation you. and I want to, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I just felt like I had a weird vibe what? where I'm just like, I want you to know that in, in this particular version of the, of the book, anyway, this film version, uh, you do, you come off well. I do come off well. I am pleased about that. <laughs> Still, it is a little, I don't know, mind boggling, shocking that I could call, Rogan's office three times, Franco's office three times, and be shot down, and nobody wanted to talk to me before they portrayed me. That is incredibly strange. Yeah, that's yeah. what that I don't understand so about the That is so bizarre to me, and I'll tell you, the, the word lawsuit has never entered my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm a Hollywood pro. I don't reach for lawsuits. Right, gotcha. But I'll tell you, I've never done a film project or TV show in 30 years where the lawyers don't make us crazy vetting every name we're about to use to make sure they are cleared. Right. He's using my name across the planet Earth. The man never talked to me, never cleared it with me, never asked any sort of permission, nothing. The book is pretty fucking funny, though, because I respond to everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited to read the book, to be honest with you, at this yes. point. The thing I'm curious about is you talk about the, the comedy of Tommy Wiseau or the comedy of the movie itself and, and how you brought the funny. I'm curious, you know, the, the question that a lot of people grapple with, with when they go to see The Room itself, the, the actual film, is what the what is the joke? For me, the single, what I worked off of, what I had, what to me seemed the key, and every movie's got one, because every single movie that's ever been made can be boiled down to a 10-minute Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> everything, everything. So you got to look at what, what is the key? What is the hook? Oh, a piece of cake with the Rome. <laughs> I saw it 10 minutes after meeting Raphael. Uh, I have a master's degree in, psych in clinical psychology. When I, and he knows that, which is why he called me instead of the other hundred guys he knows. Yeah. <laughs> he knew that I would take one look at Tommy Wiseau and find this all absolutely irresistible. And he's right. <laughs> I saw that face. I heard that voice. Oh, my God, I have to share this with the world. Nobody right. is ever going to fucking believe this. And I did as best I could. So what is the hook? Everybody saw me making a comedy. The crew, the cast, everybody. In the meantime... I had a gentleman channeling Marlon Brando from Streetcar Named Desire every second of every day. He never got it, not one second, until I think about eight years after that film got cut together did he realize that, holy shit, people like this because it's a comedy. Who knew? <laughs> everybody but you, dude. Everybody but you. The Spoons. Yeah. yeah. I made an interactive movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> It happens by accident, and nobody could be more pleased than me. People interact with my film. Are you kidding me? 
This is the pinnacle of success. I could not believe it. I love room fans. I landed when I first saw the room in, in its all its glory. I had just gotten off an airplane from Eastern Europe where I was doing a very serious project and having the time of my life. Mm-hmm. I step off the airplane in LAX and oh my God. The billboard. It's playing everywhere. Oh. Holy <laughs> shit. Guy picking me, picking me up at my luggage carousel as another film director. He said, we're not going to the house. We're going to your, to the Egyptian. You are not going to believe this. There is a line a half a mile long. They, for what? Why? Nobody was ever supposed to see that movie. Nobody. I was just having fun. Right. Unless I did something to get it noticed. Guess what? It got noticed. <laughs> yeah. That's all you can hope for. Spielberg makes a movie. Sam Raimi. Uh, all of them. You're hoping for one thing. Please, dear God, let it get noticed. And it did. Yeah. It got noticed. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I have to say going to see the room with a live audience is a, is a rare, rare event. The best I can describe it is kind of like seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Maybe even more interactive. I was in Pittsburgh working on Super Ninjas for Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the owner of the largest theater in Pittsburgh calls me up. Uh, I know you're the guy that really directed the room. Yeah, we play it on, on, you know, the last Friday of the month. Would you be willing to come on out after your day of shooting? Well, I don't know. You got a balcony for my crew, my incredibly hammered crew. (laughs) Sure, it's Friday night. Come on. So I tell the crew, uh, I'm going to introduce the room at the Hollywood Theater. And they're like, oh, sign me up. Yeah. They were up in the balcony in any manner of alteration, screaming the comments with everybody else. I, I walked up. I, they turned on the house lights. It was not the 300 people I was promised. It was about 3,500 people. Gotcha. It was jammed to the gills, standing room only. I introduced the movie and said I would answer questions at the end. I sat in the middle. I threw the spoons. I yelled at the <laughs> scream. I had the, I had the time of my life. It was so much fun with the fans. I went up to answer questions. It was like walking on bubble wrap with all the spoons there. You know, <laughs> oh, yes. tip, 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 tip. I answered questions starting around 1230 at night and nobody left that theater until about four o'clock in the morning. Not kidding. Everybody stayed. Big question. What didn't I direct? Right. That's easy. And please let everybody know. I'm not claiming everything no director does. Sure. First of all, there's a second unit at work. Hello, we never shoot second unit. These guys were up in San Francisco. I have no idea who they are. Yeah. They shot a jogging thing. They did the high doggy thing and <laughs> some kind of flower shop thing. Yeah. All right. yep. I have nothing to do with that. Meanwhile, the only thing I didn't shoot were Tommy's two love scenes on the last day for unbelievably good reason. Yeah. And you lift for a Yanis Kaminsky film. Is that correct? Yeah. I showed up in the morning. There is Tommy doing Tommy breaking. Every, look, I learned how to direct love scenes from Zalman King. Right. Arguably the finest love scene director in the history of film. He taught Jesus. He taught Spielberg how to shoot a love scene. He taught, he taught Kubrick how to shoot a love scene. I was sitting next to Zalman when Kubrick called him, uh, to ask him how we should do eyes wide shot. All right. Love scenes. We all have rules. These rules are not to be broken ever. Mm -hmm. I gave Tommy the three rules. He wants to break all three of them. (laughs) Adios, muchacho. I will not direct pornography. I've made a lot of questionable decisions in my life. 
Oh, oh, you have no idea. (laughs) But pornography, gentlemen, this will never happen. And I drove away. Uh, So I'm curious, uh, before we wrap this up, um, you're you're embarking on uh, your own directing career now. You've obviously sold screenplays. You started this interview with with the uh, with the two most important things in film, which are yes, story and performance. Never, I, never forget those. Now I'm curious, and arguably, uh, you know, as I'm fairly sure it's fairly undisputed at this point, you are the director of the room. Arguably, one of the most successful interactive films that has lasted far longer than most mainstream movies that is more come on how incredible is this i mean how incredible is that you never know when it's gonna happen nobody does yeah look at this holy shit on a shingle oh and by the way yeah let me let me just toy with your brains for a moment all right (laughs) the absolute single funniest thing that ever happened on that set yeah (laughs) nobody knows and nobody will know because I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> All right. However, if the day comes we're sitting in a bar and you're buying me a drink and I know there's no microphones nearby, I promise you'll pee your panties. I absolutely <laughs> guarantee it. I'm the question I'm I'm really curious about is now that arguably you've achieved uh, an incredible amount of of artistic success in having so many people love your film. What I'm curious about now is do you think the projects you're about to start have either the the same magic dust that was a, that that was sprinkled across the room, or what is it your what is it in your future projects that you think will be similar to what you achieved in the room? The humor level, um, the insight. I'm telling you, after 30 years, and any guy in my spot would say the exact same thing. I am now, I believe, at the height of my skills. I'm 60. Hollywood for 30 years, script supervisor for 27. I've directed, I've written. I'd like to think that, for better or worse, I am at the peak of my skill set. The movie I want to direct in January slash February is called Walking in L.A. It's an absolute true story. I've already got uh, Malcolm McDowell signed on board, Michael Madsen, Mike Starr, Drew Van Acker, uh, um, Paxton's son. It breaks everybody's heart. James Paxton, Bill Paxton's kid. Um, I have Julie Benz. I have an excellent, excellent cast. Love Julie Benz. Um, And that's only the beginning. We want to roll from there. Um, It's a wonderful script. Um, I can't wait to shoot it. The community of directors and Hollywood professionals, they will read my book. They will get it instantly. (laughs) We have all been through this. Yeah. One form or another. We all have our dark dog days that we are the projects we worked on the way up and we all have a million stories. Um, but hopefully that makes us better directors, uh, better filmmakers, uh, better writers. Um, we have the skills. This, this walking in LA is a good one for me to come out of the gate with it, I believe it's very commercial. Uh, think hangover, think, uh, drug, alcohol fueled adventure, nothing but laughs and entertainment. And because I insisted, being 60 now, I've (laughs) woven in a a message. A film is great. It's even greater when there's a message. Something. In the middle of all the drugs and the alcohol and the party (laughs) and the walking and the disasters, it says a wonderful little message about the state of the homeless in Los Angeles. Okay. And that, that works for me. Hopefully I'd like to see any investor look at me, look at the room and say the one sentence that they all will. If he could do that for the room, can you imagine what he's going to do for me? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's true. It, 
It's a, it's an incredible, it's an incredible calling card. However, I am the only person who's never made a dime off the room. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's the other. That's well, the other I would like that everybody is profiting. Rogan and Franco, this is already getting the Oscar buzz. Yeah, deservedly, deservedly. I have heard comments on Franco's performance that I haven't heard in years, and my my ear is to the ground. Mm -hmm. The film mm -hmm. is going to be brilliant, and these boys are going to make millions, maybe even a hundred million dollars, maybe even way more than that. I don't get a penny of that. Mm, yeah. My name, my voice, my face, my work. I don't know. I haven't asked for anything, but it just doesn't seem fair to me, does it? No. no. And, I, and I think this will this will obviously change with the release of your book in the next few weeks. The book, uh, for everyone at home listening, is Yes, I Directed the Room, The Truth About Directing the Citizen Kane of Bad Movies by Sandy Schclair. Again, Sandy, thank you so much for your time. I want to go out just with a little, maybe you can, you can help us with this. Uh, I want to talk about just the moment that you left the room. Again, uh, calling from the book here. If we lost Sandy, I felt the room might not be completed. He'd been extremely helpful, and we still had a lot of complicated important scenes to film. Well, complicated by the room standards. Uh, Byron, uh, who I believe was the third DP uh, that had gone through the film at this point, had been useful, but Sandy actually got into the trenches with Tommy. Yes. The only reason we'd gotten anything even remotely watchable on film was due to his ability to turn Tommy's, to turn Tommy's vision into something slightly less extraterrestrial. Sandy, I think you, you gave uh, the extraterrestrial vision of Tommy Wiseau a human form and and uh, you uh, you know what uh, just, again for anyone who hasn't seen the room in a movie theater it is a once in a lifetime experience and i think talking to you we realize that it is it is it is because of the work that you did on this film, again, you come across, I, I, you know, I know there's a, there might be some bitterness here with, uh, with the uh, lack of communication from the Rogan and Franco camp, but I don't believe there's any malice or malevolence in, in their performance of you. They, they do truly, I think, even talking to you, honor um, the, the humor and the, and also I, I think very clearly you are the, the, the gel that held that film together. Absolutely. No matter what those guys did, come down to it, Franco and Rogan, they're filmmakers. They get it. They, they've done exactly what I've done many times in their own past. You know, they're filmmakers. They get what I did, they get what I walked into. It's really not right that they didn't contact me, but I'm not gonna land on them. I mean, I don't know. We'll see how they react to it. Yeah, I mean, and 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 the and the book is a great is a great sort of avenue to get like as you said, sort of your 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 side of this story out in the world, and and hopefully, I have to, yeah, I have to. Those reports from set, I know there were lies being told about me. Absolutely, that movie ends with a lie. So. You know, I would like to set the record straight. Yeah. No, so, I so think that's Sandy, good. So, Sandy, just to take us out, what is what is your favorite memory from having from working on set with Tommy, with uh, with Greg, with everybody on the room? What is the what is the thing you come back to? Um. All right. The last time I shot with Zalman King in Europe. Mm -hmm. He's a brilliant director, and for nine months, how about that? Nine months in Europe shooting stuff, man, that was great. <laughs> Zalman was brilliant. He started every single day with the same phrase. Okay, children, what's fucked up for today? <laughs> because something is always fucked up. Yeah. What was my most fun with the room? Problem solving. Right. Yeah. Every single day, every hour of every day, absolutely a, a parade of disasters with me having to solve them all. 
Every day began with Tommy handing me one or two pages to shoot. I had no idea what was coming at me. I, I, I was loving that, but I don't think any film director has ever gone through anything quite like that. <laughs> so he's handing me the pages. I look at it. Oh, a rooftop in San Francisco. Really? <laughs> Today? Let me just pull that out of my ass. I think I can figure that out. <laughs> Joe, a few sheets of plywood, a couple of green screens, a brick wall from the prop place across the street. Boom, I am shooting a rooftop in San Francisco. <laughs> the continuity was all off. I have gotten so much crap online for the continuity. Guys, I'm a 26-year veteran professional uh, script supervisor. Of course, I saw the discontinuity. I added to it. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you don't think that's funny? I do. <laughs> I, think, I thought that was hilarious. The rooftop scene, every shot on Mark, the background changes. Okay, come on. How funny is that? Right? The city view changes every time. I just, incredible. Anyway, this has been a lovely interview. Yes. Thank you so much, Sandy. This has been, uh, this has been incredibly enlightful, uh, enlightening, 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 enlightening. Yes. I'm lost for words at this point. You guys are terrific. Anytime you're out in LA, if I'm working, come out on set. If you get out here, give me a call. I'd love to hook up with you. Meet you for a cup of coffee or something. It'd be really great. Hell yeah, man. That'd be awesome. We will definitely take you up on that. Terrific. Thank you. So that was Sandy, man. Sandy, I, I'm, so I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna take, I'm definitely going to take him up the next time I'm we're in LA. We're drinking. We're yeah. going. We're going to the bar, uh, <laughs> and I will buy that man a drink. Shahir, when we are not interviewing fantastically interesting and and wonderful people, where can folks find you? You can find me being completely unremarkable and uninteresting on my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are laughing at the butt of Tommy Wiseau gyrating sensually across a woman's belly button, where can people find you? When, when, when I'm doing that, <laughs> yeah, you can you... find me at where well, you could have found me at the Sunshine Theater, but that's closed. When I'm doing literally anything else, you can find me at M A T T H E W K R O L dot com for all my life and works. Also Skeletor the number four P R E Z on Instagram or Emperor M S K on Twitter. Please also write us in to tell us the movies that you think we should be reviewing before the end of the year. There's only a few weeks left, and uh, what do you think would make our top ten if we if we had to see it in the next week? And then we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna see ignore a bunch. you. Yeah, and we're, we're gonna, gonna completely ignore you. Ignore you. Yeah, we're gonna add a list of films that we need to see, and uh, we're gonna go from there. Yeah, we're just gonna watch the Phantom Menace on repeat. Oh, <laughs> it's gonna be great. Instead of the Phantom Thread, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, which we have to see. We're just going to watch the Phantom Minutes. It's the same thing. I promise you it's the same thing. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sticking around for this extra special, long, super fun edition of the only podcast about movies. We will see you next freaking week. Hopefully. We'll be there. Will we? Yeah. Unless something happens. Nothing's going to happen. I'm sadness from inside out. Something Uh, bad is going to happen, isn't it? you're, You're just tearing me apart. Lisa. Shut up. (laughs) 